So it's like, I want to be the author of my own story. And I think everybody else should have the same approach. You got to shoot your shot. You got to let people know what you're doing. You got to be comfortable getting your name out there, getting what you're working on out there and uh, let the world know. And then as you do that, opportunities will present themselves. Welcome back to Evolving, the podcast designed to help you strive, thrive and optimize. Today, I am joined by Andrew Baines, an engineer, recruiter and host of the Custom Journeys podcast on YouTube. This podcast was designed to introduce talented Black and Latino STEM professionals and help them to find careers in tech. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, what's up, Nita? Thanks for having me. Definitely. And I got to get you to do the voiceover and the intro for my show. Like, you kill it. Thank you so much. That means a lot, especially coming from a veteran podcaster like yourself. So I wanted to ask you, what was the impetus for starting the Custom Journeys podcast? Oh, man, that's a great question. And... um it's funny because we're both in the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program, right? And this is what, week three or four? Anyway, I'm supposed to create a post about what's my why for creating content. And this is something that I'm really going to hit on is for like the first 17, almost 18 years of my life, I really did not know what I was going to do with myself beyond like playing sports. And I even wanted to graduate from high school and go on and play collegiate sports, football, track, something of that nature. But I'm not a very tall guy. I was saying like five, six, maybe five, seven on a good day. So my likelihood of having an NFL career was very slim. But thankfully, when my senior year of high school, I had a conversation with a gentleman, uh, Mr. Ron Forrest. He was a black engineer here in Houston who worked at an oil and gas company. And he kind of mentored me, told me what my life could be like if I decided to pursue a path of being an engineer or a STEM professional. Uh, I got a chance to check out his house, a really nice two-story large house uh, in Richmond, Texas, and nice cars, all that good stuff. And I was like, yo, sign me up. And so I realized throughout my career that it's really not these big, extravagant moments that have like the biggest impact on us. A lot of times these small interactions, these small conversations, and these small seeds that are planted within us that help us pursue greater things in life. And so I had a good friend in college named Eliseo Iglesias. He was teaching classes at Trinity University in San Antonio. And he had me come out virtually and talk to his students about what it's like to be an engineer. I've worked at General Motors and then also Rice University as an engineer. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. And I was reminded really quickly of my experience when I was 17, 18, trying to figure out if I could be an engineer, what it was like. And so the power of storytelling, plus being in the middle of a pandemic, I quickly realized, like, if you're trying to have an impact, one of the quickest ways to do it is through podcasting. And so I said, hey, let me get on there. Number one, tell my story. Uh, tell Elisei Iglesias' story and then highlight other Black and Latino STEM professionals so that other youth, adults, whoever can look and see these successful people that have done it and understand that, hey, this is something that I can do and then actually have a roadmap for being successful in their career. So that was kind of like a long-winded answer, but that's kind of what sparked the Custom Journeys podcast. I love how you discuss the importance of role models in your own life, like Ron Forrest and how that showed you what was possible. How important do you think it is to have this representation, not only in STEM fields, but also in pop culture, just so that people know that anyone of any background is capable of doing anything? And I'm sort of thinking of that 1988 movie, Stand and Deliver, where there's this teacher and he kind of coaches this group of kids from a high school and he teaches them calculus and I sort of point to that as this one really inspirational movie in the way that anyone can do anything if they're given the right resources and the right mentorship. So what do you think about representation in general? Yeah, no, I think it's really powerful and it's much needed. And um, 
I'll say for any field and really any field or anything that people want to pursue in life. And I focus on the STEM component and STEM careers so much because me being a young black boy at 17 or a young man at 17 years old, all I saw from like media or representation on TV was like athletics and entertainment. So it's like, okay, I already know I can do that. Like the NFL, even like I said, even though I was, I wasn't very tall, like in my mind, the NFL was a hundred percent obtainable for me. Like there wasn't any doubt, like you couldn't convince me that I could not be in the NFL, uh, regardless of like how tall I was or whatever. And it's not the same case when you think about like STEM or engineering or any other of those technical career fields. And I think part of it is because like we don't have that many people within our family groups or within our communities that we know um, are STEM professionals and they don't see anything on TV that represents that as well. Like even me growing up, when I mentioned Ron Forrest, like he was a family friend, like for the first 16 years of my life, he was a family friend. I knew him all that time, but I did not know he was an engineer until it was like senior year of high school. And so I think even though there is some representation out there, we have to do a better job of like showing up. And by showing up, I mean like talking to people, letting them know what you do, encouraging others to pursue these different career fields. Because I think that's when we'll really start to see a switch where it's like, hey, we start to see a really large influx of people of color pursuing these technical career fields. And it's funny because like, as I'm prepping for this LinkedIn Creator Accelerator program, my why for creating content, like I've interviewed probably 40 plus individuals now and the majority of them have similar stories where it was these small interactions. Somebody came to a school or somebody came to church or somebody just, a counselor encouraged them to pursue something uh, technical or some kind of STEM career. And that's all it took. And it's like, yo, these small seeds, like they seem like small things, but they can have a really large impact. And so that representation that's showing up, that can have a really, really powerful impact on what somebody decides to do in their life. And, you know, so yeah, I, I'm all for representation, whether it's for STEM careers or any other thing that people want to pursue in life. I love how you mentioned how those small everyday interactions, whether it's at church or whether it's talking to your mailman, any of those small interactions has the power to spark a conversation that could really alter the trajectory of someone's life. And I really like the fact that you include interviews with people who have non-traditional educational backgrounds. Like you recently interviewed Eric DeLeon, who discussed his journey as a dropout. And could you talk to us a little bit about trying to get into tech or trying to get into STEM fields when maybe you haven't had the same educational resources and experiences as other people? And how do you get started when you might be afflicted by imposter syndrome? And this is obviously something that affects anyone, regardless of where you are. But sometimes it can feel as though I don't have the same level of expertise as other people because I didn't finish school. And what are some ways to get people like that involved in these fields? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's something that I'm a really big advocate for, like non-traditional pathways, alternative education. And part of it is because of my own personal experience. I'll kind of speak to my own personal experience first. So like, I remember when I graduated from college with a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, in my mind, I thought employers were just going to be lining up like with $80,000 jobs right there waiting for me. And I was kind of surprised when it was like, I probably had like two companies that were willing to hire me or make offers to me. But the amount of money they were paying was like, yo, this is not what I envisioned. It was like mid 50s or low 60s, something like that. But in my head, I was like, okay, I'm an engineering student. The world is my oyster. Where do I sign my name on the dotted line? And so it really wasn't my experience. And then a big part of it was because even though I went through college, got a degree, I really only had one internship throughout college. And that was actually in between my bachelor's degree and then deciding to do my master's degree. So even after I graduated, I got a, my first internship. 
But prior to that, I didn't really have any strong, relevant work experience outside of working in a research lab on campus. And so that, coupled with other people's experiences that I knew that when they graduated, they took months and months and months to find a job. I realized that employers really don't want to hire someone who doesn't have experience, regardless of if you have a college degree or not. And so if colleges are graduating these people with all the student loan debt, but they still don't have any experience in the employer's mind, it doesn't really look like they're prepared to enter the workforce. Whereas, hey, if I can go get a certification or a um, go to like a coding boot camp or an apprenticeship program, all of those give you like project-based experiential learning where like, hey, you're solving real world problems and you're gaining that experience that in a college setting you don't really gain. So in college, you're taking like calculus one, two, and three, physics, thermodynamics, all that stuff, which is great and it helps you be a better problem solver, but it doesn't really transfer over to being able to solve like some company's business needs or it doesn't convert directly to generating the company more money or saving them time or whatever the case may be. Whereas, hey, if you go through like a non-traditional pathway, you're kind of proving that along the way, like you're solving actual problems, you're working directly with an employer if you're in like an apprenticeship or something of that nature. And so to me, I'm like, yo, this doesn't make sense. Like from the college model, we're graduating people with a ton of debt. Uh, they don't have any experience unless they've made it their own effort to go get an internship. Whereas these alternative pathways, like we have YouTube University, like you can learn anything at the click of a button now. And if people are going through programs such as apprenticeship programs or boot camps, a lot of times you're getting a chance to interact with employers and figure out what they're working on and help contribute to their problem that they're solving. So looking at it from that perspective, I was like, yo, like, why don't we have more employers sponsoring education or working towards like making programs that can actually benefit uh, increasing the talent workforce that's needed. But long story short, I just think like if you look at like the STEM needs or the hiring needs from the technical industry, from within the tech industry or engineering industry or whatever, like there's such a labor shortage right now. And People aren't willing to go sign up to get into all this debt and going through college to do it. So it's like, hey, why don't we create an alternative solution that helps train people with the skills that they need, whether it's through an apprenticeship or whatever, while also giving them the skills that they need, whether it's learning how to code or getting familiar with project management or whatever the case may be. And I just think it's so much more that you can do. And in terms of the imposter syndrome part, that's like something that everybody struggles with, regardless of like what your gender, your ethnicity, any of those things. So that's something that really, I think looking within yourself and realizing like, yo, you're talented, you deserve to be here just as much as somebody else. And of course it helps when you have people that can kind of speak life into you and kind of encourage you and tell you, hey, like you're really talented, you're really skilled. And then also while you're continuing your education and gaining those skills on your own, all of that kind of helps. I feel like I said a lot, but I don't know if I answered your question. Absolutely. And I really identify with that message that experience is often greater than education because you do want the ability to solve real world problems. You want the ability to think critically about a given situation and propose possible solutions. And I love that mention of employers funding more educational programs that are kind of tailored to the skills that they're looking for in their roles that they're hiring for. And I myself am a college dropout. So I definitely have relied on the fact that I, you know, built a portfolio. And I think you can't really stress enough the importance of building a portfolio because then employers can see the way you think, the way you solve problems, the way you articulate yourself. So whether that's like a portfolio of your coding projects, articles that you've written, just show people what you can do and just, you know, go ahead and get your hands dirty. And it, I love the idea of 
interning while you're in college to get that real world hands-on experience. And I think another point that you make is that some of the best opportunities aren't advertised. And you recently interviewed Destin George Bell, and he talked about how he was able to secure a $50,000 grant from Niantic just by cold pitching the CEO. And how important is it for us to kind of be gutsy and take those chances and just put ourselves out there, even if an opportunity isn't advertised? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I see you doing your research, Nita. I appreciate that. You know, going back into the podcast, the Custom Journeys catalogs, I appreciate that. But no, I think that's really critical and really huge. Like, I think so many of us, and myself included, it might just be the way we were raised in the school system. We're so familiar and comfortable with, you know, kind of putting our head down, working, being super humble in our own space, focusing on our work. But you really need to take the alternative approach of, Build in public, let people know what you're working on, let people know what you're passionate about, get your opinion out there. And that's part of the reason why I think content creation is so important because you can document the process for people to see. And the more people that see what you're doing, the more people that hear about what you're working on, when opportunities come up or when things present themselves, you're going to be at the top of mind. And so like in Destin's case, like he's a scrappy, I think like 23 year old, 24 year old college graduate. And he's like, yo, like, he doesn't know what the meaning of the word no is really. So he's figuring out, yo, like I want to create an app. This is what the idea is. So he's cold messaging people, going, hitting people up on their LinkedIn DMs, which I'm a big fan of, all that good stuff. And really like shooting his shot because at the end of the day, like if you don't shoot your shot, you're not going to know what could have been. And I, I really don't want to look up and be 60, 70, 80 years old just thinking about what I could have done. I'd rather get rejected a, a thousand times and get that one acceptance that I really, really was looking for and that's really had a big impact on me versus going my whole life and being on my deathbed thinking about, man, I didn't live life to the fullest and all this other stuff. So it's like, I want to be the author of my own story. And I think everybody else should have the same approach. And, you know, you can write the story how you want to envision it. You can be the man, the woman that you want to be and you get to take control of that. And so you got to shoot your shot. You got to let people know what you're doing. You got to be comfortable getting your name out there, getting what you're working on out there and uh, let the world know. And then as you do that, like opportunities will present themselves. And it's not always going to be a, hey, um, you finding out about like a scholarship or a fellowship opportunity or an accelerated program opportunity. Sometimes it's going to be CEOs or somebody just kind of connect the dots for you because they know what you're doing. So it's a really important skill to have. I'm always encouraging people to, you know, put themselves out there and, and let the world know what they're working on. I love that reference to building in public. And I feel like this model is being a lot more widely adapted these days, which I love to see. And I feel like the benefits are multifold. On the one hand, you're definitely getting your work out there and letting people see what you're doing. But then I think you're also building a lot of trust with your audience because they're seeing the highs and the lows. Because I think so much of the time, we only see like the pinnacles or like the peaks of people's success. But then you also want to know, yeah. like, what are the obstacles that you had to overcome to get there? Because I feel like that human element, like showing your humanity, that really helps to build that trust. And it makes you more relatable as a person because people realize that growth is not linear. It's, it's very convoluted. And when you look at the actual graph, it looks like a mess. <laughs> but I think that's something to be embraced. And... I think building in public is just a great way to bring your audience along your journey with you. And I feel like growth is a lot more likely to happen versus if you stay in stealth for too long, 
which I think some startups fall into that trap of being in stealth for too long. I'm glad you said that because, I mean, it's a big point. When you look on Instagram, like all you see is like the best and the brightest, somebody standing next to a Rolls Royce, somebody on a private jet, all that thing. And I was like, okay, man, like I want to do that. I want to do that. But I think like when we're building in public and documenting the process, like you said, like people can go back and look at the first video I uploaded and it's like, I have no haircut. I'm in my bedroom. You can see like the TV, the dresser behind me. My wife hated that I was recording in our bedroom, but it's like, yo, I'm going to get this out here regardless. And so now, like a year from now, two years from now, when we have like this whole super high tech studio um, and people see like the top tier production, they can still go back to that first video and see like where the growth occurred. And I think that's important because it builds the trust and also it inspires and encourages other people to get started. Like the podcast was started with a webcam, really just a laptop, like in Zoom. So that's the way we started. Now I shoot everything on an iPhone and I'm quick to tell people that like, yo, if you got an iPhone and a laptop, what are you talking about? You can't produce a podcast, like get started. So I think it's really inspirational to kind of document this process as well. I think that's another key benefit of it. 100%. And I love the reference to, you know, being scrappy with your solutions, whatever you got, use it, you know, don't wait for the perfect setup to come along or like the right equipment to come along, get started with whatever you have, because at the end of the day, it is the message that is going to come across more than the production value. Because, you know, if you have the production value, but the message isn't valuable, it's not going to matter much. So I love that, that message to be scrappy, just go ahead and get started. And also, you know, when you're pushing yourself to go ahead and shoot your shot, like you're saying, because like the worst someone can say is no. And that kind of reminds me of a TED talk that I had watched one time, I think it was called what I learned from 100 days of rejection. And basically, every day he challenges himself, the speaker to do something that's slightly out of his comfort zone. Like, I don't know, maybe returning a plate of food, because that's something that's kind of hard for some people to do. And I myself, I struggle with those things. But um, I think it was uh, simple things like, you know, on one day, ask someone if you can borrow 10 bucks, and then just like graduate to progressively more uncomfortable things like approaching people in public and stuff like that. But I definitely think that some desensitization to rejection is healthy, because I think you're kind of depriving yourself from opportunity by kind of staying in your shell and not taking those chances. Absolutely. And I am like introverted by nature. And like when I say even as a youth, like I was super introverted. Like I remember one time I was dating this girl and we had went like to like a party or something. And she's like, yo, you really got to stop being antisocial. And I'm like, I can't help it. Like this is just (laughs) who I am. But um, no, I, I struggled a lot with like the fear of rejection. And I don't know, like once I went to college, that's when I started being more comfortable. Like, again, like being the person that I imagine myself being or the person that I want to be and really realizing that like, okay, they said no, so what? Like, number one, if it's like a random person, it's like, yo, I'm never going to see this person again, most likely. Like, I don't care, like, if they say no or they say, yo, this is not an opportunity or not the right time for you. Like, okay, all right, I'll go ask somebody else. I think we're almost at like 8 billion people in this world. So it's like, there's plenty of more people that I can ask or pitch to or whatever the case is. So getting comfortable with being hearing the word no is super important. And I think I love that idea that that guy on the TEDx talk gave, because I think that, that's really challenging to the point where like my wife, she'll be like, oh, this is nasty. I want to send it back. And I'm like, babe, no, nah, just eat it. Like, say, like, no, if I'm paying for it, I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, sir, I'm sorry. There's certain things that like still I struggle with. And they're like the smallest things. But in terms of like pitching myself or saying what I'm doing, 
And then even meeting people, I still get butterflies sometimes when doing that. But again, it's like, if I make a fool of myself, so what? It's like the interaction didn't go good. I learned, I got to practice. I got repetitions under my belt. I'm getting better over time. So I don't, I don't live like with those decisions like I used to, meaning that like, I don't let them beat me up or get down. So yeah, you have to put yourself out. There's no getting around it. Like if you want to create something, if you want to build something, uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, um, you have to get comfortable hearing the word no and like not taking it personally and just moving on to the next one. Absolutely. Speaking of uncomfortable conversations, I feel like salary negotiation is something <laughs> that a lot of people struggle with. And I feel like this is especially true for minorities and women. There is a tendency to undersell or not value skill sets as much as should be warranted. And do you have any advice for people when they're going into a salary negotiation about kind of like negating the uncomfortable aspects of it and how to just kind of stick to the points that are going to be most relevant to that discussion? Yeah, no, as soon as you said salary negotiations, I was laughing because it's like salary is something that's like, it's taboo to talk about it. Yet I ask almost every guest how much money they make. So I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm asking every single one of my podcast guests, like how much money they make. And it's like, I give them a heads up before I do it, but it's always still like, I don't think they're going to answer. And it can be a little uncomfortable, but I, I try to be as respectful as I can when I ask. But in terms of like negotiating salary, um, I don't know. It is tough. Like I remember when I, I got my first job offer out of college, I got a job offer from General Motors and that was like my dream job, my dream company to work for. I want to make sure I get the numbers right. So I had an offer from Lockheed Martin and from General Motors. This is like back in like 2014, I think. And so when General Motors called me, I was like, they're like, hey, we want to give you a job. Uh, you're going to be like a CAE, noise and vibration engineer. The hiring manager is offering you 70 grand. And I'm like smiling ear to ear, like, I'm about to get a job, I'm about to hang up the phone, come with mom. And I was like, okay, wait, calm down. Internally, I'm starting to have these discussions. Like, remember what we talked about in career services? So I used to go to career services quite a bit. They had like etiquette dinners and all that stuff, free food, but I digress. But anyway, they did also teach us about like salary negotiations. And so um, I took a moment to kind of pause. And um, I was like, you know what? 70 is cool, but I think 80 just sounds better. And so I didn't tell her that, but I was like, hey, you know what? I'm graduating with a master's degree. I have a lot of experience with final element analysis. I'm a quick learner. I don't think it'll take me much time to kind of get started. I'd like to ask the hiring manager for a starting salary of 80 grand. And um, the recruiter was like, hey, okay, I'll take it back to the hiring manager and see what he says. And they called me back, like, I think a day later or something. And um, they said, hey, okay, so the hiring manager can't do 80, but he's willing to go up to like 73,000. And I was like, all right, cool. So let's do it. Because it's like, yo, I was going to take the job either way. But just to like get that practice. And then also I felt like my worth and my value was more. Um, so I did want to ask that. But it can be a tough discussion to have. And I think in order to be successful at negotiating your salary, number one, I think you need to know like what the market rate is for that position that you're applying for. And so um, a lot of people go to like glassdoor.com. I think there's like salary.com or something like that, I believe where you can kind of basically check what other salaries are, especially for that particular company that you're looking into. And so I always start with like glassdoor.com. And I think there's even one that's like primarily for like tech careers. I can't believe I'm blanking out now. But anyway, it's like anonymous, completely anonymous and people are like very transparent about not only what their base salary is, but then also like their total compensation. So in terms of like sign-on bonus, yearly bonus, 
stock options, things of that nature. So you want to find as many data points as you can to figure out like, hey, what's the market rate for this current salary? Then number two, you want to look at, okay, what are you bringing to um, the position that you're being hired for there? Or if you're trying to negotiate a salary increase, what are you bringing to the company that's above and beyond what they typically ask for? Or what's your value proposition? And so a lot of times that just kind of boils down to how are you saving the company time or how are you saving the company money? And so um, I used to keep what some people call like a brag book or like just a catalog of my wins for the year. And so if I wrote a Python script that saved the company time, that equates to saving the company money as well, because then those are work hours that me and some of my colleagues can now spend doing something else. And so you want to track what you're bringing, what your value proposition is, come up with a list or whatever the case may be. And that way, when you're having the discussion either with the recruiter or with your hiring manager, you can bring tangible reasons why you deserve a pay increase. And then um, I will say, you know, from talking to people, it does also help if you have a bargaining chip and it's a, you need a legit bargaining chip, but meaning like, hey, if you're applying to other jobs and you really want to stay at your current one or if you're open to leaving, but some another employer is offering you a higher salary, um, that's an additional bargaining chip that you can take back. So if you have an offer letter from somebody else, whether it's a different employer or if you're still working or if you have multiple offers on the table, that always helps at the end of the day because the market for talent is always tough. So you can always use those to your benefit. So I would definitely say do your research, track what your wins are or brag book, and then also um, just have that conversation and get out there and shoot your shot uh, with the manager, you know. And again, if they say no, okay, go back to the drawing table, go back to the drawing board and um, start looking at, hey, do you want to stay at this company? What opportunities do you want to pursue after this? Or do you want to look outwards and see what other employers are hiring um, that are going to give you a salary more in line with what you're hoping to achieve? That's invaluable advice right there. Number one, do your research, find out what the market rate is. Two, keep a brag book, clarify your value proposition. And three, maintain a bargaining chip if you can. Thank you so much for walking us through that. And I did want to go back to this one point about salary transparency. Of course, there are websites like Glassdoor that post what other professionals in certain industries make. Do you think that it is beneficial to have salary transparency within a company or organization? Because some people advocate for this saying that it helps to enforce equality, helps to prevent discrimination on the basis of sex or race. But I guess there's also an argument that it could maybe trigger some animosity. But do you think that having salary transparency within a company would help to kind of close the pay gap that we see in terms of the gender pay gap, especially, but kind of preventing discrimination on any sort of demographic basis. Yeah, and I think it's huge, and I think it's really important. Let's say you're making 100 grand for a company, and then they're hiring somebody for the same exact position, same exact level, um, and they're paying them 120. Situations like that, where it's transparent, that's going to create some animosity. Because it's like, hey, it's like Nita's been with a company for one or two years or however long you've been there, and now you're making 20 grand less than this other employee or you don't have the same uh, stock options or whatever the case may be, I can definitely see where employers are like, yo, this is not a good idea, it's terrible. And it makes a lot of sense why they wouldn't want people to be transparent about their salary. They wouldn't want employees to be discussing what their benefits or what their salary is. Um, But on the flip side, I think, and I've heard some stories of companies bumping up their current or existing employee salary to match incoming employee salary. I think that just really creates a sense of loyalty and, and, uh, and increases uh, employee morale within the organization. 
Because to me, if it's like, I think a lot of people right now feel like companies don't really care about them at the end of the day. Especially when you look at like what the climate is in terms of like all these tech companies laying off tens of thousands of employees. And so I think with people having this sentiment, they really want to know like what they're getting paid and so they can have full transparency. But no, to kind of summarize, I think the salary transparency at the end of the day is going to benefit everybody. It'll benefit, number one, the employees in terms of like discrimination, because we hear about like the gender pay gap, the racial inequality in terms of pay gap and things of that nature. So being transparent can, number one, help close that. And companies that are serious about it and not just putting percentages on their website about, hey, we're this percentage diverse, or hey, we help close the pay gap by X amount, like show what the actual salaries are. And if you do that, I think that will, again, like increase employee morale and also increase perception outward from people outside of the organization. But the companies that don't go about it the right way, of course, they're going to like want to keep the blinders on everyone and prevent salaries from coming out. I'm all for like salary transparency. And while you were talking, I just remember the website, I think it's called Blind. It's like this anonymous professional network. So you can go on there and anonymously say like what your total compensation is, um, all those kinds of including like salaries, stocks, all that good stuff. And so that's another resource that people can use in order to like make sure that they're getting what the market rate is in terms of like salary and total compensation. I like how you mentioned the importance of walking the talk, not just talking about how we're increasing diversity, closing the gender pay gap, but actually really sticking to that in terms of having our actions back up those words and being transparent about salary. Speaking of blind, I wanted to ask you about your idea to make a spin on a 90s blind dating game show. But instead of making love connections, you want to set up a blind date between job seekers and hiring managers and recruiters. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with this idea and how you plan to put it into practice. <laughs> hey, uh, the perfect segue. And um, yeah, it's something that I think is a really fun idea. And it's, the inspiration just came from really seeing other content that's been out there and then also realizing like, we all have biases, right, as individuals, whether you're Black, Latino, white, whatever, you all have bias, man, woman, whatever. And so um, really, I wanted to come up with a concept that can, number one, help remove some of the bias from the hiring practice, because I think a lot of times we hire who we're comfortable with, we're hire who's within our network. And I felt like, hey, if we're being serious about being intentional for giving people a fair shot, regardless of what their race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, Let's have like a blinded game show where it's like, hey, you can't see who's on the other side of that panel virtually or in person and just give you three great candidates that check the box in terms of meeting all the technical requirements or meeting everything on the job description. And let's just have a conversation. And I think that's really interesting to me. The concept is really interesting to me because I think at the end of the day, people will get to see that like, let's say you're a white man interviewing a, a black woman, a Latino female Indian or Asian woman as well. Like at the end of the day, I think you're going to see there's a lot of similarities. At the end of the day, we have more things that bring us together than that make us different. And so really the idea is to really focus on like, hey, what is the skill set that this person has and what can this person bring to the culture and the, um, the team that you're building outside of just the technical skill set? And I think that we'll see like, hey, we got a lot more in common than what we think like initially. So I, that was kind of like the motivation that plus like when I was a kid, I would struggled with asthma. So I would be at home a lot, missing school a lot. So I'd watch a lot of TV. So like Daddy Game Show, Jeopardy, Price is Right, Mari Povich. That was my go-to right there. It was like 11th century. I'd be watching somebody 
run backstage saying you are not the father or the woman takes off running. But anyway, like watching so much TV and just being creative and taking walks and letting the creative juices flow, like that was kind of like the inspiration or what kind of brought the idea out there. But now it's like, hey, how do I execute this? So I'm like talking to a lot of companies, three in particular that are like within the financial services industry. I won't say the names yet because there's nothing official yet, but um, they're pretty close. I need that first person that's going to take that leap of faith and say, you know what? This is valuable. Let's give it a shot. And so I think the way I want to execute it initially is probably by doing like a LinkedIn audio event because that won't have the complete blinded component unless I'm there with the hiring manager and they can't see the screen. But the great thing about that is that like those audio events are not permanently recorded. So let's say, hey, this conversation doesn't go the way we expected it to go or um, the company feels like they didn't represent themselves a certain way that they wanted to, then, hey, that conversation is not existent at this point. So I think that's one idea. The other idea is really to just do it either in person or virtually um, where I have three people, three candidates on camera that you can't see. And then I have one hiring manager or recruiter that is on camera with me asking those three candidates questions about why they should join the team. And it can be fun as well. Like, hey, what's your favorite Marvel movie or um, rom-coms or action movies? Like, it can be all kinds of questions, not just what programming language do you code in? Like, I want it to be engaging, fun, exciting, all those kind of things. So thinking outside the box and trying to make the recruiting and the hiring process a lot more fun than I think it currently is. Definitely. I love the blinded aspect as a way to kind of counteract any subconscious biases that we may have. Because a lot of the time, you might go into something and maybe if you haven't been around really diverse crowds before, you might just look at someone and feel like, oh, this person is other, but you don't know that their life history, their experiences are so similar to yours. And I actually really identify with being sick during grade school because Jeopardy is my jam. Like I was a quiz <laughs> bowler in high school, middle school, and through college. And I actually got to attend those in-person auditions in 2019. But yeah. uh, I love the idea of bringing people's personality into the interviews because I feel like that just helps people connect on an even deeper level. And I mean, you never know, because a lot of the time, I feel like this is more common now. Sometimes employers will have people take personality tests as part of the onboarding process, not as a way to decide if you're going to be on the team or not, but just as a way to figure out like, well, you know, how many people here are introverts? How many people have this particular communication style as a way to yeah. troubleshoot workplace interactions. And I feel like that's kind of a, a neat way to use that as well. I mean, a lot of personality tests aren't really that scientifically accurate. But that being <laughs> said, I feel like it's still a fun little thing. And it's still cool just to know how your colleagues like to be communicated with and, you know, what their personality is like, because, you know, everyone's a little bit different. If the golden rule is to treat people the way you want to be treated, Sometimes people say the platinum rule is treat other people the way they want to be treated. And I guess just having more data on people and what they like, what they dislike, how they want to be communicated with, then that can help us execute better and provide and kind of deliver on treating them the way that they feel comfortable. Yeah, that's really cool. I haven't heard that before, but that really makes a lot of sense because, I mean, we all have different styles, different personalities. And I mean, what works for you may not work for me. I may say something or have a certain interaction with you. And to me, that's the way that works perfectly good to me. But for you, you might take it the wrong way or it might have come off as disrespectful to you. It just kind of depends on your personality, your life experiences, all those things. So I think that's that's a great point, you know, in terms of like treating other people the way they want to be treated. 
I mean, that's like a whole nother level of like empathy. I think the world is missing so much empathy at the moment. So I'm all for like anything that just gets people to think not just about themselves and think about, hey, how is this impacting other people? Um, how is this impacting my coworker? How do they prefer to be communicated with? All those things. So I think that sounds really, really good, really like really powerful. Yeah. And going back to what you're saying that we do interpret things through the lens of our own personal experiences. So that kind of influences what our pain points are, what our triggers are, and take your time getting to know your colleagues. And I think another thing is that a lot of health officials, including public health officials, feel that we're currently in this age of, or this epidemic of loneliness. And some people feel that making workplace friends or just kind of bonding with our colleagues has the potential to mitigate some of that. But how important is it that we kind of form those close bonds with our workplace colleagues? Yeah, so it's funny. This is something that I've actually recently had a discussion with a friend about. Um, we both kind of office out of a co-working space and we're like all like unofficial co-workers, but she has like her own co-workers in, in her office. And so... I think there's two like thought processes to this. Number one, like some people are like, yo, I'm just here to get my work done, clock in, clock out, get my paycheck and go home. Like all this other stuff, like you're distracting me from like what I'm doing. Like these hour and a half, two hour lunch breaks are like getting me away from the work, which means I have to work later or spend more time working on this project. And there's other people where it's like, hey, like if we're in the office and it's probably not as relevant now, like post pandemic, but if we're in the office, for eight hours plus a day with these people, like we should work on creating some relationships, fellowshipping with these people, building rapport, getting to know them on a personal level because it just makes the work that much more enjoyable. And I think I kind of am in the middle a little bit. Like I used to love going on like lunch breaks with coworkers and stuff like that. But then I look up and it's like, we've been here for two hours and I got to go pick up my kid at 4.30. So it's like, yo, that means I'm going to be at home working later. So I think you need like some kind of balance in between those two. Um, I do think that, like, from a loneliness standpoint, especially, it's probably even worse now that we're, like, in this hybrid or remote work situation. I think those relationships are important. Like, we're a very social species. We need interaction. We need touch. We need communication. We need conversations, all those things. Even as an introverted person, like, I had to watch myself because it was like, yo, I was at home for, like, a year and a half straight. My wife and kids would go to work, go to school. And it was like, yo, I'm at home in this silo, like, not really interacting with anybody beyond like a few Zoom calls every day. And um, that's not good for us. So I think we need like a healthy balance between the two. Um, so whether that's like, I don't know, maybe we need like some adult recess time where it's like, hey, all the remote workers go outside at 12 o'clock and go meet up at the park and like, I don't know, have lunch and play with each other. But I jokingly say that, but I think we need to value more like those human connections, those human interactions. And even more so than that, like, I think like getting to know people outside of your own social group and your own ethnicity and your own like stepping outside of your comfort zone, basically. Get to know somebody from a different background, from a different country, somebody that knows a different language, like learn about them. Like I've been fortunate in the STEM careers pathways to like work with people from China, from India, from Colombia, people, of course, American, all of them from Ghana, Nigeria, everywhere. And so like I just take it as an opportunity to like learn more about us and like what makes us similar? What makes us different? Like, what can we learn from each other? I think it's definitely important to kind of value those human interactions. From a business standpoint, like, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know as well. So it's like, it can help you get to where you're trying to go. Like, again, like going back to letting people know what you're doing, like, it really helps if you 
have more connections, more strong relationships with people. That way, when opportunities do come up, you're like, again, you're at the top of their mind. Absolutely. I love that idea of expanding our horizons and potentially pursuing some adult recess because <laughs> recess actually for children performs a very instructive purpose. And there is this point of diminishing returns when it comes to how much the human brain can really learn in a given day. And, you know, recess or that time to rest really helps you consolidate information in your brain. And social bonding helps facilitate a lot of beneficial processes too. And I think that the more that we can kind of connect with one another and learn from one another, the better off that we'll be as a species. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of your wisdom and insights with us. And we will be looking forward to watching that game show when it's released. Where can people find you online? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. And um, if you want to find me online, the easiest way is, number one, right now I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So if you go to LinkedIn and you type in Andrew Baines, my last name is spelled B as in boy, A-I-N-E-S. And um, you can find custom journeys on LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, IG, Twitter, everything really at custom journeys. That's C-U-S-T-E-M-J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-S. You know, got a little shirt right here on. So uh, yeah, you can find us on like all social media platforms. We're really heavy on YouTube, also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And um, Nita, I love what you're doing. Like, this is really fun. Like, I'm really glad that we got a chance to connect through the LinkedIn Creator Accelerator Program. And I appreciate you for giving me the opportunity to come on and talk about what I'm doing and what's important to me and increasing diversity in STEM. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your spirit and for your mission and for the work that you're doing. We will be cheering you on and please come back again soon. Absolutely. Let me know when I can come back and I'm all for it. You can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.